You are welcome to adjust the angle of your chairs, by the way. It does look a bit like you're in a train station. (laughs) The train will just come by in a moment. would like to focus on in the talk this evening is essentially the the landscape of mindfulness, or I would even refer to it as the anatomy of mindfulness. I don't know what it's like here in Denmark, but, but certainly I'm very aware that in England and the U.S. and other places, that this word mindfulness has suddenly become trendy, is to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a word that has become very kind of rooted and naturalized in our culture and in our vocabulary. And of course, what we all experience is mindfulness, some, a quality being cultivated in not only in intensive retreats anymore, but in such a wide variety and spectrum of applications. You go into any bookstore, and you will now find shelves. Um, And some of them are really pretty out there on the edge. You know, I recently found a book called Mindful Bodybuilding. (laughs) And I thought, hmm, well, we're getting quite out there. And, you know, it's actually, it's actually becomes hard to get away from, doesn't it? I mean, last time I went to my dentist, you know, there it was, mindfulness and three easy steps. You know, and I thought, well, I can't wait to read this, you know. <laughs> 44 years and now it's three easy steps, you know. So it was just stop, breathe, pay attention to your body. And this was the prescription that apparently was going to cure everything. But what I also see is mindfulness is a word that gets used in such a lot of different ways. I've heard it being used as something that you do. Someone says, I do mindfulness, (laughs) which, again, I find interesting. Sometimes I hear it used almost in a judgmental way, as a kind of um, scolding voice, you know, as as a kind of almost hijacked by an inner judge, you know. If I was more mindful, I wouldn't have done this, you know, and if I was more mindful... I would have spoken like this. I've heard it used uh, even if a person, you know, has an accident, they drop their salad or something. You know, it becomes used then as a kind of indictment of failure. You know, a mindful person would not have had an accident as if mindfulness is somehow a guarantee that we're in control of all conditions in our lives. 
Sometimes I've heard the, your word mindfulness used almost interchangeably with a watching, observing, a kind of removed, neutral position of witnessing. Now, apart from all of this kind of razzmatazz that surrounds the word, I'm sure that we are all very, very aware that the cultivation of mindfulness can have a very profound effect on people, on our own hearts, our minds, our lives, whether it is cultivated in a retreat or in the rest of our lives, that mindfulness does bring about this enhanced sense of wakefulness and opens the door to the possibility of greater insight. And as such, mindfulness is a key. It's a key in the fabric of transformation. It's part of the landscape of transforming some of our most embedded psychological and emotional habits that cause distress and suffering. It does seem that mindfulness can be one of the keys in transforming the way that we see ourselves, the lens through which we see the world, how we live our lives, how we relate, how we think. And as such, mindfulness is not something we do, but of course, it is a way of understanding. It is a very specific orientation of the heart in relationship to all things. And yet in some of the situations where I teach and work, there seems to be this ongoing discussion about um, that, that at times it seems rather mysterious, the process of transformation. How does mindfulness actually work? Why does it have some of the profound effects inwardly and outwardly that we've all seen? So what I'd like to do in the talk this evening is to endeavor um, to explore the ways in which mindfulness is particularly understood in Buddhist psychology and to understand the very, very rich fabric of mindfulness. And hopefully in understanding this very, very rich fabric of mindfulness, it will go some way to understand how mindfulness, when used wisely, is actually effective and transforming, but also an understanding of how extremely and deeply challenging the landscape of mindfulness can be. Now, first, we've already used this word today, but I will bring it forward again, this word sati. Again, you know, in English, it is translated into mindfulness. But I think often it loses something in translation. Um, because when it's translated, it often feels or is, or is used in a kind of one-dimensional way rather than this multi-dimensional exploration and cultivation. Certainly this word sati, if you look at the early texts of the Buddhist teaching, 
It is one of the most frequently used words. But I think what is what I really want what I want to start with is to mention the distinction between this word sati and another frequently used word which is manaskara or attention. Now these two of mindfulness and attention I think often get mixed up and they are really not the same at all. Now, attention, we see, is a factor of consciousness, a factor of our mind, that all of us need simply to get through life. We need to know how to pay attention, how to bring attention just to function. Attention can stop us from being run over by a bus. Attention, but attention can be skillful and wholesome, or attention can be unskillful and unwholesome. Now, we need attention, clearly, to learn things. We need attention to learn how to play the piano. We need attention to know how to listen to another person, to care for a child. But not all forms of attention are that skillful and that helpful. For example, a burglar or a shoplifter has very refined attention skills. A sniper really needs to know how to pay attention. So it can be skillful or it can be unskillful. Now, these words, wholesome and unwholesome, or skillful and unskillful, it's really important to be aware that these are not implying good, bad, right, and wrong. It's t- when, we use, when I use the word skillful or wholesome or unskillful or wholesome, it's really talking about the landscape that attention arises from, what it's dedicated to, and what the outcome or the result is. So what I'm suggesting is that attention, attention in any form, manaskara, arises from a spectrum of intentions, sometimes from habits, sometimes from preferences, sometimes from tendencies that shape the kind of attention that we bring and also its outcome. If I could give you a very, very practical example of this. A couple of years ago, I was on a retreat and I was doing a lot of concentration practice, so my attention level was actually pretty good, if I do say so myself. So there I was at lunchtime going to, you know, I went there in a very focused, attentive way, served myself lunch in a very attentive way. At one point, I would have said it was mindful. Um, in a very attentive way, went over to get some soy sauce to put on my rice, reached out, very attentive, picked up the bottle, poured it over my rice. It was balsamic vinegar. (laughs) So although the attention level was there, the attention was actually not being informed by clear comprehension. 
it wasn't actually seeing that clearly. In fact, it had this major blind spot. So when we refer to wholesome and unwholesome, or skillful or unskillful, we're actually referring very simply to the kind of intentions and attention that will either lead to distress and perpetuate conflict or suffering, or there are obviously kinds of attention that lead to the end of distress and the end of pain and suffering. Now, the word sati, or mindfulness, in Buddhist psychology is very much a relational word. Mindfulness is a family creature. Very much always has a family. Mindfulness never stands alone, but instead mindfulness is always in an ongoing dialogue with a range of other qualities. Wise intention, wise effort, investigation, joy, attention, calmness, equanimity. This is the family of mindfulness. These are the qualities, and it is also not only the fabric of mindfulness, but this is the fabric of insight. And mindfulness is essentially concerned with insight, with developing understanding. Because this is the family of mindfulness, mindfulness, certainly in Buddhist psychology, is always a wholesome quality. Because it has a very singular intention. And the intention of mindfulness is to understand and bring about the end of emotional and psychological distress and confusion. And to bring about the end of all of the roots of distress and confusion. So mindfulness as a wholesome quality is truly dedicated to bringing about the end of anxiety, the end of greed, the end of conflict, the end of ill will. Mindfulness is directed towards cultivating a heart and mind that is really rooted in balance, in clarity, in kindness. We could say that mindfulness, then, is always... It has a happy family. It doesn't have a dysfunctional family. (laughs) So mindfulness is always cooperating with its family members. And this is what actually gives mindfulness the power of transformation. Now, this, you know, in meditation practice, in the kind of practice that we do here, this is, of course, very implicit. You know, it's woven into the practice. It's woven into how we practice. And in Buddhist psychology, these qualities of mindfulness are very explicit. So mindfulness in this sense is certainly not attitudinally or emotionally neutral. And I will go on to explain about why this is actually so important. So if we think about it, what is the first job of mindfulness? Well, I think the first job of mindfulness is to illuminate the moment. To illuminate the moment. So here we experience that very directly and very experientially. Suppose you go out on your walking path. 
with a mind that is filled with a jumble of thoughts and uh, unfinished arguments and you know, fantasies and ideas and plans, and you walk up and down your walking path in a very dedicated fashion. But the mind can be so full that you may not even hear the bell. When you do hear the bell, you may also have that rather unwelcome moment of realizing that you have spent the last 45 minutes looking like an amazingly great walking meditator, but not felt a single moment of your feet touching the ground or the air on your skin or the color of the flowers or the movement of the clouds. Now, you can go out another walking period, walk exactly the same walking path. And yet, with a mind that is more attuned, more aligned, more present, more connected, and you get a felt sense of the way that mindfulness almost seems to awaken the world. The way that mindfulness almost seems to, does seem to illuminate the moment, the sounds, the the, the felt sense, the sights, they, they, they come and are received with a sense of immediacy and aliveness. Now, conventionally, we refer to this as being present. But it actually feels like a very small phrase to actually really describe what it feels like to feel that alive and that connected and that receptive. Now, mostly what we experience in our practice is a sense of going in and out of this sense of being present. You know, we have moments of mindfulness and then incredible moments of forgetfulness. And then moments of mindfulness and then forgetfulness again. And we seem to go in and out of this sense of being present. However, I'm sure you will notice over this week that the more that we practice, the less do we have this sense of going in and out. Now, this is equally true. This sense of illuminating, awakening, is equally true in the world of the life of our bodies, our minds, our hearts. We bring that same sense of shining the light on, of awakening, so what was previously unconscious or inaccessible to us, again, suddenly comes alive. And we begin to know the quality, the the breadth and the depth of our internal experience moment to moment. What happens, we start to be more intimate with what is actually going on. However, we do discover that mindfulness cannot be conditional. That the very nature of mindfulness is that it is unconditional. We can't choose to be only mindful of the lovely and then have the unlovely surrounded by forgetfulness. That's not actually how it works. Now, this doesn't always feel like very good news. 
You know, and it doesn't always feel that welcome, and at times it feels quite challenging. It is why people, you know, certainly in the first days of a retreat, are, I've often heard people say, well, I was actually happier before I began practicing. You know, and it wasn't until I began practicing that was when I realized how habitual I am, how judgmental I am, how self-critical I am, how comparing I am, how forgetful I am. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard this, that I didn't realize how mindless I was until I began to make the effort to be mindful. Now, that doesn't always feel like great news, (laughs) Because when we, certainly when we begin to sit and walk and practice in a retreat, it sometimes does feel that we have more unlovely moments than lovely moments. You know, you, you, you've seen it today. You've seen the power of the hindrances, you know, move through the kind of sleepiness that's so difficult to be with, the, the agitation, you know, the kind of craving, the will, the doubt, it can just feel like this parade of, you know, difficult, (laughs) difficult meetings. And it's hard to be interested in them, isn't it? It's hard to be that interested in sleepiness. It's hard to be that interested in doubt. And yet, this is what we're asked to do. This is what we are asked to cultivate. To know that our mindfulness cannot be conditional and actually is asked to embrace everything. Because we start to see, you know, in this teaching, that this teaching is incredibly interested in what actually distorts our capacity moment to moment for wakefulness, for a sense of inner freedom and aliveness. What is it that distorts that capacity? We also see that as we sustain and begin to sustain mindfulness, we meet sometimes even more complex and powerful emotional states and memories of you know, anxiety or a wounded sense of self. And some of these difficulties, some of these layers we encounter seem to come with this very, very long history. Now, what do we do in those moments? Now, I don't feel that the kind of guidance of mindfulness is simply watch it or simply witness it. In fact, I think that that kind of of instruction could actually be a prescription for disaster and helplessness. You know, just watch it. You know, to look, look fear in the eye with a kind of cold observation, I think, could send people into an abyss of despair and powerlessness. And that is why it is so important to understand that mindfulness doesn't stand alone but it needs its friends. Mindfulness needs its allies to allow the possibility of understanding and being free from the difficult, to find the inner freedom and understanding that allows us to see in new new ways. Now, I mentioned a little bit before that mindfulness is not attitudinally neutral. It is 
firmly rooted in kindness and compassion. Firmly rooted in kindness and compassion. In fact, the Buddha described kindness as a necessary foundation for all meditation practice and has been the very ground of mindfulness. Kindness is so necessary to counteract our tendency to flee from the difficult. You know, that very human response to pain, which is to want to get away from it, to want it to end. That very human response to pain, which gets translated into aversion and fear and resistance. You know, there's this very, very wonderful short line in the Dhammapada, you know, one of the very simple early Buddhist texts, where the Buddha says, hatred is not healed by hatred, but hatred is healed by love. This is an eternal law. And I think it's very important to reflect on how does that teaching, that very simple core teaching, how does this actually apply to mindfulness practice? Because in my understanding, it surely does. It surely does. Now, we don't encourage, obviously, ourselves or anyone else in this practice to suddenly think they have to like pain or they have to like emotional distress. But we do encourage ourselves and others to see that aversion to pain, that aversion to the difficult, is surely only going to double it. That aversion to and fear of the difficult is surely only going to compound it and to make it increasingly difficult. Now, there is a certain inevitability that in all of our lives, we will all meet our own measure of the painful and the difficult. The Buddha was a person who discovered this very early on in his own life, that no matter what, all of his endeavors and strategies and whatever were not going to be entirely successful in protecting him from the difficulties and afflictions that life can bring. So what does kindness mean in this mix? Kindness is at times a simple willingness to meet the difficult, to turn towards it rather than to flee. It is almost counterintuitive, isn't it? To turn towards difficult rather than to push it away. But it is the first and the most important step of transforming our hearts. Kindness at times is a simple willingness to touch the difficult with a mindful curiosity rather than to condemn it. Kindness is at times the willingness to take the blame out of the painful. You know, I have seen people even feel it is their fault that they are in pain, that they are doing something wrong, that it says something about their adequacy. I think kindness is appreciating that we have never been and never will be in control of all of the conditions in our life that can come together in a matrix of pain. And sometimes there is a long lineage in some of the difficulties that we experience ourselves. You know, I have learned that very, very early on in in my own practice. I mean, I come from a long lineage of 
um, impatient people. Um, you know, and I, I can sort of track it through generations. You know, in my early years of practice, when I was so impatient, you know, and so had this kind of shouldn't be impatient kind of mind, you know, began to look at that lineage and began to realize actually the size of this cloth, you know, of what it meant for me to learn to be patient. It was almost as if impatience was in my bones. But learning, learning to take the blame out allows the capacity to meet what is there. Kindness is sometimes a simple willingness to care about what is going on rather than to abandon it. Abandon it. You know, because without kindness, and I think we need to be so, kind, so mindful of this, that mindfulness can become yet another weapon of judgment and accusation. You know, I am so angry. You know, I am so aversive. You know, I am so greedy. This is not mindfulness. This is a kind of beginning, embryonic waking up being hijacked by another tendency of the inner critic and the inner judge. But it is important not to confuse that with mindfulness. It is, so, it, it is often, I think, in practice, that it, we are almost learning the landscape of kindness. We are almost reteaching our minds. We're almost re-educating our hearts in the language and the touch of kindness, in learning to befriend, learning to welcome, rather than to defend and to resist. We learn this in our practice, and we learn it in our lives. And it is one of the pivotal and the primary lessons of mindfulness, of the teaching of mindfulness. So I want to look at some of the other family members of mindfulness part of its fabric. Now, the second, I think, of the friends of mindfulness, the family members, is investigation. So investigation is the dedication to understanding. One colleague I know of calls it an affectionate curiosity. An affectionate curiosity about what is actually going on. Investigation is directed towards understanding process. It's directed towards understanding how our personal world of the moment is being born and shaped and formed because this happens so quickly that we come to be sort of contracted within my world without understanding how we ever got there. You know, you can walk by the kitchen and just a small smell of garlic can come out the window. And in moments, in moments, we can find ourselves remembering, you know, some romantic dinner in an Italian restaurant where we met our lifelong partner who we then got divorced from and then we were happy then and then we were so unhappy and then we're off in this all associated feelings of failure and 
dissatisfaction, we can walk down the path and smile at someone who doesn't return our smile. And before we know it, we're into this world, this cascade of remembered rejections and hurts, and nobody loves me, and nobody has ever loved me, and nobody will ever love me, and it's because I am like this. A pain in our knee, and we're, you know, already in the hospital emergency ward, you know. (coughs) We see a rabbit hopping on the grass, and we're already planning our next vacation. Now, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? These worlds of the moment. I mean, just try and reflect on how many worlds you have inhabited today. And isn't it interesting the kind of amnesic effect of them? You know, when we're in that world of planning our next vacation and fantasizing about who we're with, we have completely forgotten about that miserable world we were inhabiting half an hour earlier (laughs) over the pain in our knee. And when we're inhabiting that miserable world of our divorce that hasn't even happened yet, we have completely forgotten that a half an hour before that, we're actually quite content and all was well. There's a kind of amnesic effect that happens through this contractedness, but sometimes it can be deeply painful, and it is so important for us to understand how our world of the moment is born and shaped. And this is part of the work of investigation. So investigation is not just about thinking. It's not just about retrospective awareness. Investigation is something deeply experiential. But the great gift of understanding, born of investigation, is that it so helps to take this sense of confusion and bewilderment out of our lives. I mean, how many times in your life, perhaps, have you found yourself asking the question, how did I end up here? You know, how did I end up here in this huge storm or this huge emotional roller coaster? Or how did I end up here in this huge kind of construction about myself? How did I end up here so angry or so agitated? And often that question, I'm afraid, is followed by the word again. You know, how did I end up here again? With investigation, with mindful investigation, we do begin to know. We begin to trace and to see and to understand the process of our world being built moment to moment. And that knowing and that understanding, you know, so much takes away this sense of helplessness and impotence and bewilderedness, bewilderment that comes when we just don't understand what is taking place. And perhaps with the investigation and the understanding of process, we also begin to sense that these constructions are not life sentences. Perhaps there are other pathways that can be cultivated. 
There are other pathways that can be followed. I mean, one of the gifts of mindfulness, apart from illuminating the world, is to begin to slow down the process of construction. So it can be seen. And you know what? Then perhaps we can just smell the garlic as the garlic. You know, perhaps we can just see the rabbit as the rabbit. You know, perhaps we can just experience the unpleasant sensation as the unpleasant sensation. Now, the third ally of mindfulness is (coughs) energy. Energy. It's an interesting one. Because you notice that whenever we get stuck in this sense of confusion and bewilderment, it often brings about this sense of hopelessness, kind of despair, you know, oh, always going to be like this, you know, there's no, it, it seems to leach, to suck the energy, the vitality out of our lives. Knowing the possibility of walking new pathways is actually the beginning of the arising of wise energy. Now, in Buddhist psychology, this word for energy actually is translated, again, it's another one of these words that has so many nuances. Because energy also includes courage, patience, dedication, perseverance, fearlessness, all of this is part of the fabric of energy. Now, it is true that, especially in the first days of practice, don't we just often feel like we're a little bit short of energy? (laughs) Like we just don't have the energy that is required to be awake. You know, we can find, oh, I have to drag myself to a sitting. I have to drag myself to a walking. Now, I think... A really important question to ask is how do we, not, not to say I have no energy, but to question how do we use the energy that we have? Because if you look back over today or even look back a little bit further, probably appreciate what enormous energy we can put into rumination, into obsession, into fantasy, into plans, into pursuing the things we want. How many people were late for meals today? Probably not many. We're there. So I think one of the very real questions is how wisely or unwisely, how mindfully or unmindfully, how consciously or unconsciously Do we use the energy that is present? Now, what we're doing here, you know, a retreat is not a marathon. We acknowledge that. I mean, and we can feel so exhausted. Now, to mention, as we did already earlier on today, some of that tiredness can be what I call honest tiredness. You know, it's just honest tiredness. You know, we've been overstretched in our lives. We actually need a little more rest. But there's another kind of tiredness that we talked about, which has got nothing to do with honest tiredness. I mean, it has to do with uh, veiling. It has to do with the mental state. It has to do with the mental state. If you look, we're not, I mean, if you look really honestly at what we do here on a retreat, you know, I mean, we just sit around. You know, it's not amazing. We just sit around most of the time. 
mm. Occasionally we get up and we have a little toddle back and forth, you know. Um, and then we sit around some more. I mean, my son, when he was a teenager, you know, he used to take a picture of my daily schedule and email it to his friends, you know. <laughs> and they used to roll over in laughter because this was their ideal job description. <laughs> yeah. Look, she's sitting. Oh, she's having a little walk. Oh, look, she's sitting again. Oh, another little walk. Oh, lunch. Oh, sitting more, you know. And they thought this was the ideal job description, you know. Without appreciating how challenging it can be to be awake. And I think what's really important for us, what's really useful for us to examine is this link between interest, intention, energy, and mindfulness. Because without interest, energy doesn't arise. Without interest, intentionality just becomes forcing and shoulding. So in many ways, interest is actually the key to energy. I mean, if you reflect back to the first time you ever fell in love, did anybody actually have to tell you to be awake? <laughs> Probably not. Hmm? The interest is there, the intention follows, the energy follows, the mindfulness and the connection follows. So one of our very key questions in this practice is, how interested are we in being awake? How interested are we in liberating our hearts from confusion. And I wouldn't ever, ever expect an immediate answer to that. Because I think that is an ongoing investigation, but one of the key investigations. Because I think this is where, you know, we just don't talk in this practice and in this path. We don't talk about a lukewarm interest or only the interest that is awakened when we're in the midst of horrible suffering and then completely forgotten when things are pleasant. You know, what we talk about really at the heart of this path of awakening is a passionate interest. A passionate interest in being awake. A passionate interest in, in compassion, in kindness, in connectedness, in freedom in our lives. Now, en- energy is not only something that is, arises in our practice, certainly because it does arise in our practice, but it, it, energy is also a way of focusing the insights that are born of our investigations. Intra- energy and effort are ways of focusing some of the insights that are born of our, our investigations. For example, if we truly understand impermanence, I mean, intellectually, we all, all under, agree, but if we truly understand impermanence, then it is effort that actually translates that understanding into how we live in terms of not clinging, not grasping. If we truly understand that aversion you know, has a terrible effect upon our lives and relationships and hearts, then it is energy and effort that focuses that insight into actually how we embody that in our lives and how we live in the light of that insight. 
Energy and effort are very interwoven, and they are so important in the fabric of mindfulness because it is energy and effort that rescues mindfulness from passivity. And mindfulness is anything but passive. You know, if, if you walk outside and you see someone kicking the cat, you know, mindfulness is actually not saying, oh, seeing, seeing. You know, it is energy and effort that is engaging that mindfulness with the world, with bringing about the changes that I needed, with manifesting kindness and courage. And it is necessary. It is energy and effort that rescues, in a way, our hearts and minds from everything that disable them and that lock our hearts and minds into confusion. Energy and effort is born of really being aware of what we are feeding moment to moment, the skillful or the unskillful, the wholesome or the unwholesome, because what we surely see in our lives that what we feed will grow. What we feed will grow. Now, the next ally of mindfulness is joy. Joy. And when, I, when we talk about joy, I think it, it's very important to, to not immediately let our minds go to imagining some huge inflated state of joy or ecstasy or bliss. I mean, you know, tell yourself, you know, in the midst of aversion, oh, be joyful. You know, it doesn't really work. But joy is something that is cultivated. And it is a very important fabric of our attitude. I mean, when you, <laughs> you know, there is a tendency in practice, I have to say, to think our practice is more virtuous and noble if we're really suffering. So sometimes practice is approached in that way. And when I talk about joy, I'm not talking about, you know, just a kind of dismissiveness or superficiality. But it is an acknowledgement that actually the difficult is made much more accessible with a mind of gladness and a heart of welcome and kindness and ease. You know, the difficult is not made less difficult through being met with a grim determination, you know, or a kind of resolve to, you know, wait it out or to endure or to grit our teeth. This is not an attitude that is actually very helpful to mindfulness at all. Now, like kindness, we almost have to reteach our hearts its capacity for gladness and joy. And part of that, this is an education. I mean, I, it's, it's pretty obvious in our culture, you know, that we tend to be problem-centered, don't we? I mean, you know, we, we really notice what is difficult, which needs noticing. But we notice what is difficult far more than, than we notice what is well. And actually, it is expanding the kind of field of our mindfulness, the field of our awareness, to actually hold the whole of the moment. For example, say your body, you feel agitated. You feel agitated, you just feel agitated, restless. You know, can you actually bring your attention to something in your body that is not agitated, that is calm? You notice pain. Can you actually bring your mindfulness to actually also notice what is not in pain? When we step outside, can we teach ourselves the lessons of spaciousness to actually see the sky, the trees, 
the grass, the space around all things. We are teaching ourselves to approach each moment with a heart that is not contracted. And the heart that is not contracted is the heart that can be touched, that can be gladdened, that can actually be touched by the lovely. This is not a denial of the difficult, but it is surrounding the difficult with ease. Another, and I'm going to actually start talking faster here because <laughs> Another of the family members of mindfulness is calm, serenity, stillness. Now, what I really want to point out here is that often when we speak or think about calm, we think about a state of calm that is somehow separate from states of agitation or restlessness or anxiety. Now, mindfulness practice, in my understanding, is not concerned with achieving states. Because mindfulness, in in its understanding, knows that states are born of conditions. They will come and they will go. Just like the weather patterns of today. Mindfulness, instead of being concerned with states, is oriented to a way of seeing and embracing all things. So when we speak about calm, it is very helpful to turn it into a verb. We are calming. We are calming everything that is agitated. If you go into the Satipatthana Sutta early on, when we speak about mindfulness of breathing, it gives the guidance, you know, breathe in, calming the body calming the mind, breathe out, calming the body, calming the mind. So it is a process, it is a verb, again, is it a relational quality, relational to agitation, relational to anxiety, calming. As such, it is something very alive. We are learning the lessons of calming. We start to notice when the body starts moving with impulse or agitation or reactivity. That is the moment to cultivate calming. You know, not later. You know, calming doesn't come about after, after agitation and restlessness is over. Calming happens in the midst of agitation and restlessness. Otherwise, it's just postponement practice. It's not mindfulness practice. So calming the impulses. We become so aware of the states of our mind and learning, learning to bring all of this to the states of our mind. The last of the family members of mindfulness is equanimity. Equanimity is a practice. You know, equanimity, I don't know what it's like in Danish, but we never use the word equanimity in English. Hardly ever. I mean, you almost never come across across it. It is a particular Dhamma word, you know. You know, nobody I've ever met in England, you know, wakes up and I meet them, they say, I had a really equanimous day today. (laughs) You know, it's hardly a word that we use, and yet it is so important in this path. I mean, it is often equated with full awakening, liberation. 
but it's also a practice of balance, of finding balance. And where do we practice equanimity? All the moments when we start to sense we're out of balance. How to learn to come to a sense of uprightness, of poise, of steadiness, amidst all the winds of our mental states, our emotions, our sensations, how to find that sense of poise and balance. You know, in one of the... um, In the Zen tradition, sometimes equanimity is described as the willingness to be equally near all things. To be equally near all things. We could say this is also a definition of mindfulness. Learning the aliveness of this practice, learning the aliveness of this path that is very much so dedicated to bringing about the end of confusion and struggle and suffering. That this path is so dedicated to awakening our heart through understanding, understanding the fabric of mindfulness and actually, even more importantly, living it. Thank you. If we take just a moment quietly together and then we will go into the walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.